Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesha Nikolic and my guest today is Dr. Annabelle Neal. Annabelle is a lecturer of organizational psychology based in the School of Psychology at UQ. She is a specialty researcher in the field of workplace bullying and harassment, psychosocial risk assessment, and bystander behavior in organizational settings. Annabelle completed a Bachelor of Psychology First Class Honours in 2013 and her PhD in 2019 at the Centre for Workplace Excellence at the University of South Australia. She holds a graduate certificate in tertiary teaching at the Curtin University and today brought with her a fascinating topic of bullying and harassment and how to identify and understand what it is. I found this a very fascinating conversation, learnt a lot with regards to how I perceive bullying and harassment versus someone who is being targeted and how workplaces can work in a more effective way to try and meet the needs of all of their uh, personnel. Quite interesting and fascinating as this is something that is applicable to, I think, a lot of people in work settings, whether they are uh, managers themselves, uh, someone who has direct line managers that they're having difficulties with, or even bystanders. So I think it's worth worth listening to and finding out some some really uh, positive and, and helpful tips from Annabelle. Enjoy. Annabelle, a big appreciation for coming onto the show today to talk about your world in you know workplace being you know bullying harassment uh, how people behave in in these environments and to find out more about you know your passions in the org psych world so thanks very much for coming on yeah thanks for having me Nish how did you get into the space of you know org psych I know for myself you know the psychology space was all about therapy I wanted to you know do therapy one-on-one you know talk counseling type scenario what what drew you to the org psych world yeah it's a really good question it's one i um i've contemplated a lot over the years so i did the basic kind of training program of psychology in australia um, much like most of your guests have and was very set on doing clinical psychology myself and counseling up until about my fourth year and then had uh, a few more intensive classes around you know what it would be like to deliver therapy and that kind of thing and quickly decided this was not for me um you know my life experiences at that point had just not lent me to uh, really being able to understand a lot of the difficulties that people have been going through so um quickly 
put that aside. And obviously, as part of the undergraduate program, you get a lot of exposure to the different schools of of thought and practice in psychology. And and one of them was organisational psychology. And I just found I really resonated with a lot of those topics. So looking at how to relieve stress in the workplace, how to improve um, working relations, all the way through to how do we get the best people into work. Um, I think there was a lot of logic involved in those kind of processes and it was very clear to me how we could use research to you know better these kinds of systems and practices um, that maybe didn't have quite the emotional intensity that uh, you know comes with clinical psychology Um, and in particular we watched a documentary in my third year uh, that was looking at workplace bullying was a Four Corners report um, about a young waitress in Melbourne who had very sadly taken her own life as a result of workplace bullying. And, um, you know, they explored more broadly, um, you know, other people who had been negatively affected by that and the organisation's response. And, you know, back at that time point, um, bullying was still, you know, kind of being pretty poorly managed in organisations and in in some places it still is. Uh, But we have come a long way in terms of, you know, national legislation and just organisational response. Um, I think, unfortunately, in response to a a number of these, you know, incidents that have made, you know, come to light in the media and it's just something that really struck with me, um, you know, sorry, stuck with me at that time uh, and I just, you know, found a passion there and then that day and sort of, never looked back. Um, I've dedicated my research career since that time point to uh, looking at how we can, you know, eliminate the risk altogether or at the very least try and reduce some of the negative effects that come with being exposed to that kind of uh, workplace behaviour. Might be a good place to start in terms of trying to understand, and I know this will probably sound quite, quite uh, um, uh, ridiculous in terms of a starting point, but trying to yeah. figure out what workplace bullying is and, and I say that because I've got a military uh, background uh, mm-hmm. well, for a short period of time in my life uh, I was in the military and you know a, a, a large group of um, I was going to say men but I was I rather say boys um, maybe being overseen by men um, you know acting in the way that we did I, I look back and and I don't see any of it as being bullying in mm-hmm. those young eyes mm-hmm. But if I look back at it now from, uh, you know, an, an adult and, and obviously a psychologist, gosh, some of those behaviours were were appalling and terrifying mm-hmm. for for some of those, um, uh, you know, members. And, and you know, I, I have to say that I must have participated, you know, and mm-hmm. I can see the way that I was in in. Uh, in school, I, I must have participated in, in in these things without knowing it. Um, mm. At the same time, not certainly not suggesting that I wasn't responsible for for my own actions. But it, it poses the question of what is workplace bullying, and and how do we understand this with contexts? Uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, different contexts might have different ideas. Yeah, it's another really great question. So. From a legislative uh, legislative or legal sense, um, bullying is any kind of repeated unreasonable behaviour that's directed at a worker or a group of workers. So that's how we would judge it if we were, um, you know, working with some of the health and safety directives in Australia. Um, From an academic standpoint, we look for three factors. So it's behaviour that is systematic and repeated, um, usually over a time period of 
you know, I mean, we use six months in our kind of research, um, but it can be a much shorter period of time where uh, damage is really being inflicted. Um, I guess the key point there is that like a one-off incident between co-workers probably wouldn't be considered bullying per se, and that's not to say it wouldn't have a potentially a tremendous effect on the uh, the target or the victim, but you know, if we're if we're sort of distinguishing it from some of the other kind of constructs or you know forms of negative workplace behaviour, that's one of the key distinctions we'd be looking for. Uh, the second aspect is that it needs to cause harm to the worker, and I think this is really where that kind of subjective uh, part of it comes in, as you said before, um, whether or not that behaviour is perceived as bullying to the, the target or um, bystanders around them or even the perpetrator themselves really depends on a number of factors like individual levels of resilience, the relationship um, and the culture as well. So we know that these kind of behaviours um, that might be really unacceptable in your standard office environment are quite uh, commonplace in, you know, perhaps more male-dominated industries like construction and defence force. Um, you know, they become part of the accepted, accepted rhetoric about what it's what it is to be a member of that organisation and to behave. And so, uh, you're right. Certainly, bullying looks different in different, uh, you know, different parts of uh, the workforce and that kind of thing. And um, previous exposure to it, you know, we know that if you've been a target of bullying before, you're kind of more uh, heightened um, and, and sensitive to that kind of behaviour. So you're more likely to pick up on it in different workplaces and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, and the third aspect is that there's a power imbalance between the person who's doing the bullying and the person being bullied. So most commonly we see bullying playing out between supervisors and subordinates, and so it doesn't surprise me at all uh, to hear about your experiences in something like the Defence Force because we know that organisations that have a really clear hierarchical structure, so where there's um, defined levels of, of supervision and power are much more likely to experience workplace bullying than workplaces that have more of a horizontal structure. So if there's not too many levels of management or that's a more, you know, it's kind of like a flat management structure, uh, we see less likelihood of bullying and those like uh, defence, health, um, health and community services, education, you know, much more likely to, to report that kind of um, behaviour. So we know also that bullying is not a uh, reasonable action taken in a reasonable manner. So a um, pretty common example we see is that a lot of people feel uh, perhaps when they're being performance managed, that they're trying to be like bullied out of the organisation. And, and that certainly can be the case sometimes. Um, but, you know, if the if the organisation is going about that in a uh, what, you know, a, a kind of average person would see as um, a reasonable manner and for reasonable issues, maybe that's, you know, about in terms of why they're being performance managed, um, that's not something we would class as, as bullying, for example. Um, we'd also distinguish bullying differently to things like harassment. Uh, typically, when we talk about harassment, we're referring a, a, to that kind of negative mistreatment based on um, the characteristic of a, of a target, usually protected characteristics. So sexual harassment is a really good example. That's usually uh, that kind of, you know, negative behaviour in the workplace um, between a perpetrator and a target based on gender. So, you know, or... or um, 
you know, involving some kind of inappropriate sexual actions or words or something like that. But because gender is a protected characteristic, um, at least in Australia, uh, you know, that would probably more likely to fall into, um, you know, the sexual harassment class and would be investigated and dealt with probably a little bit more, a little bit differently to what we call generalised workplace bullying. Um, and that would, you know, so harass that kind of investigation of harassment would also occur if the mistreatment was, you know, due to things like age or um, nationality, sexual orientation, um, ethnicity, religious views, that kind of thing. Uh, but if we're just talking about sort of general workplace mistreatment, that's when we start to frame it as workplace bullying. It's interesting uh, uh, when you talk about it being. Uh, understood in repeated or systemic, uh, which is probably where I maybe got the the two confused with the mm. with my experiences. You know, if I was to talk from that young person's you know perspective, we'd say oh, we just give each other shit, right? Mm. You know, it's just boys yeah. in a uh, in a um, you know training training sort of environment. Yeah. You know, throwing throwing um, you know different comments at each other, and everyone's laughing and so on. Having yeah. said that, I'm sure different levels of resilience would have meant that some took some of those comments on board a, a bit more personally while others yeah. um, laughed and and tried to give it back as much as possible. And there, yeah. there was a, a bit of a culture of, of um, doing so. And, and, you know, the idea was to get a rise out of everyone else and a laugh, you know, it's just yeah. boys. Yeah. Interestingly though, you know, they're complex scenarios because they can be you know, the, this this repetitive and they can be systemic because often in those environments is where someone could potentially pick out whether it's a quality about a person, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, ethnicity, whether it's about an age or whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, you know, if there was an older trainee, we might, you know, just call them old man mm-hmm. in comparison to, you know, a bunch of 18 and 19-year-old boys. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, it's interesting to hear how how that looks and and obviously the the power imbalance um you know aspect as well mm-hmm. i'm assuming that that doesn't need to be a criteria but it's often found that there is a power imbalance where one can um use uh power as a as a mechanism for you know bullying in particular yeah, certainly. And it doesn't have to be that kind of formal organisational power that we're thinking of there. Um, often perpetrators can use uh, what we call social power. And that might be because they've been at the organisation for a really long time. And so by virtue of that, you know, they've got lots of information. They've got lots of expertise. They've got lots of relationships existing uh, within the, the uh, organisation. And if somebody were to come in um and perhaps challenge them on some aspect or start uh, showing them up and working better than them, Uh, you know, they can use those kind of resources that are at their discretion to, you know, belittle or make the the target of the bullying, you know, feel feel really bad or put them in an unenviable position in terms of their work. And, um, you know, I think that lends itself nicely to, um, to something else we look at in terms of bullying and that's whether it's personally related or uh, uh, work-related bullying. So I think typically when we think of bullying, we have this vision of, uh, you know, somebody standing over another person and, you know, wagging the finger and yelling and lots of people, you know, around them laughing or um, gossiping and spreading rumours about them. And that certainly is... Um, you know, it's a big aspect of, of what it means to be bullied. But 
what our research shows, um, and, you know, this is the uh, analysis of about 342 cases of bullying that were put to the health and safety legislator in uh, South Australia, um, in about 90% of those cases, it, it wasn't really this kind of personal uh, interaction that was um, showing up. It was things like being given really bad rosters or um, having information withheld that they needed to do work, being given unreasonable deadlines, um, too many work tasks, uh, not being allowed to go on conferences or, or training. Um so I think that's a that's a big misconception is that, you know, it can only be these kind of personality conflicts in the workplace and actually bullying usually plays out because the kind of organisational systems and practices are broken uh, and they allow people to be favoured or to be better resourced than, uh, than other people and that um, can leave them quite depleted over time, you know, really feeling burnt out, they lose social support, that kind of thing. So... Um, that was something I found, you know, really interesting a couple of years into my uh, study is, um, you know, reframing what it meant to to be bullied at work. It wasn't, this, you know, this kind of uh, narcissistic person in, in the workplace. I'm sure they exist, but a lot of the time um, it's managers who are just maybe not managing as well as they should be and they, they don't necessarily have bad intentions behind it. They're just working within the constraints of their of the broader system. Um, but it's still having a really negative depletus effect on their uh, subordinates. I would imagine that there are some listeners and even a part of me struggling to understand some of those ones that are almost seem a little ball, a little bit sort of um, on the line of, I'm not sure which way this goes, like, mm. you know, uh, bad rosters, you know. Yep. Certainly, we can appreciate where there, you know, there is obviously uh, there can be a, a you know a power play where someone is given bad rosters, very mm. specifically. Uh, other mm. times, I can imagine people just not like not liking their rosters, and and that forms a part of it. Um, yes. Kind of a bit hard, or you know, another example might might be that you know, not not going on a conference. You know, I I, I should yes. be the one going on the conference rather than my colleague. Um, mm. That must be really hard to understand when it is, when it's not, and, and, and you know, uh, how do we use that as, as as organizations or even as a researcher? Do do we just take it on face value that if someone uh, is feeling that, that at least that's their feeling? Um, mm-hmm. Do we then classify that as uh, bullying or harassment is occurring? Like how? Uh, where 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 does intent or, or or does it even matter? Um, you know, yeah. and and what are the implications? It's fascinating because you know some of those is like, oh wow, I never would have thought that. You know, like yeah. not being included in an email. You know, th- th- there's a lot of perception yeah. going on, right? Like, uh, if, if I believe that I'm being excluded, um, then yeah. confirmation bias is I find plenty of times where I'm not being excluded. You know, people walked out and they went and got a coffee and no one asked me. Yes. And I think that's where we come back to that, uh, you know, when we talk about the definition, the need for it to be, um, you know, before we can start acting on it to be systematic and repeated. You know, certainly um, if you haven't been invited to go to a conference one time, we probably wouldn't be uh, classing that as bullying and, and that's probably not going to have um you know, hugely detrimental impact on that person. But all of these little things that build up over time and, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head in terms of perception. It's, um, 
it's kind of in relation to how you see others treated around you. So, um, you know, we uh, one of the best examples I, I read when we were analysing this information um, with the health and safety regulators is that uh, a nurse who was working in one of the major public hospitals had been rostered on uh, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, uh, while all of her colleagues in her team had at least one of those days off. They were given some kind of reprieve from, you know, the, the holiday periods. And so uh, in that instance, she felt like she had been targeted. Uh, she didn't understand why um, they couldn't set up the roster so she could have at least one of those days off, um, you know, and 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 enjoy the time with her family. Um, and if it's things like that in conjunction with not having the information that you need to do your work or, um, you know, having kind of strained relationships with your colleagues or your supervisor, uh, not feeling clear about what your role actually entails. Um, you know, we read another really interesting case about um, I think someone who had general kind of office administration duties, but they were going and picking up dry cleaning and coffees and walking dogs. And it was just well outside the scope of their role description. And so it left them with this sense of, um, you know, a lack of clarity around their role uh, where they're going, well, what, what actually am I here for? Why am I being asked to do these kind of meeting, you know, um, very meaningless tasks? This is not what, what I signed up for. And um, over time, what we find is, you know, that one-off event is okay, but it starts to erode our personal and job resources. So we might go into a job with heaps of optimism and resilience and self-esteem and all of these little events just chip away at all of those resources that we use to, you know, to get through the, the bad days or the hard times at work. And then six months down the track, we've just got nothing left in the tank. We can't, uh, you know, see the event and go, oh, I, I won't take that personally. It's maybe they're just having a bad day or maybe that's not actually about me because when it happens over and over again, um, you know, I think people can't help but think, well, I, I do just feel like I'm being personally targeted. They keep, uh, you know, they keep yelling at me. They keep bringing, you know, um, bringing these unreasonable timelines and demands on me. Um, you know, my they haven't rewarded me with a pay rise, no matter how hard I work, all of these kind of aspects. So it kind of, you know, escalates over time. That's usually the word we we look um, where, you know, small, seemingly insignificant, insignificant events snowball uh, to a point of no return where the relationship uh, is just so strained and so broken that, um, you know, it's it's difficult for the person to focus on their work. They're more likely to be less productive at work, take many more sick days from work. Um, it, there's spillover effects into their family life. So, you know, unfortunately, we, we see strained relationships between spouses and their children because that stress that they bring home from work, you know, comes home and, and spills out at home. Uh, you know, they lose friendships and a um, number of, you know, physical health implications. There's a huge uh, cardiovascular risk from being exposed to bullying over time, uh, you know, detrimental effects on sleep, weight gain. Um, so it manifests very, very clearly um, in those really severe cases of bullying. And then obviously the ultimate outcome of, um, you know, some people choosing to end their life just because they don't feel that there's an escape and a way out from it, unfortunately. Is there any uh, uh, need for the person who is being uh, bullied 
or harassed to have voiced their concerns um, to try and contextualise this. Um, I'm just so cognizant. I don't want to come across uh, in in a way where um, I'm not being understanding because we all know. I mean, I've I've got you know a clinic you know full of clinicians who on a daily basis we see clients coming in who are feeling absolutely spent. Um, they are, and their worlds are, are you know completely. Uh, turned on their head you know all the things that you've said you know can't sleep can't eat properly mm-hmm. they're irritable their personality has changed they're super yeah. highly anxious um they you know the relationships change because they're in an avoidant sort of you know fear mm-hmm. response yeah. they can't connect with their children yeah. um you know that they've lost enjoyment in in, in a lot of their life you know they yeah. all the depressive symptoms come out um, and you know, in in many cases, it's, there's an identity, um, you know, issue that that comes out mm. of it because it's all of a sudden it threatens who I am as a professional, you know. And and as you say, you know, people do kill them, kill themselves. That they they mm. they, they, they um you know, take their lives. These this is extremely serious. Mm. Um, so I don't want to discount that by by any means. I am asking in terms of uh, 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 is there a need to in the context of understanding bullying, um, that it's systemic uh, because some of this is perceptual as well and some of it mm. is definitely not. Um, mm-hmm. But but is, is there a need that that someone who's, who's being bullied has been able to voice it so that the, the possible variation between the perception and, 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 you know, what might be occurring, that some of that, could be addressed yeah. uh, is is what I'm I suppose trying to trying to ask in a in a sensitive and, and kind and respectful and compassionate yeah. way. No, I'm it's so a nervous totally... asking the question. No, <laughs> it's a totally reasonable question, and it um, it opens another can of worms, really. And I guess my immediate response is yes, it should absolutely be reported. Um, you know, the, whoever's experiencing it, they should go to someone they they trust or someone in the organisation that has some, uh, I guess status or power behind them that can, you know, work towards resolving the situation. But there's a couple of issues that come with uh, reporting workplace bullying. Um, One one is that usually, and, you know, we kind of alluded to this already, bullying usually occurs between a supervisor and their subordinates, what's called downwards bullying. Uh, So if your direct line supervisor, the person that you would normally need to, um, you know, talk to uh, when workplace issues arise is the one doing the bullying, that can be a really uncomfortable conversation to go to them and say, well, I kind of feel like you're you're bullying me at the moment you know I've I've noticed this and I've experienced this um, because uh, I mean funnily enough we don't have a lot of research on on perpetrators of bullying nobody is really that keen to put their hand up and say yeah I I bullied people I'll be in your uh, research study but um, the the one study we do have which is uh, by Moira Jenkins in 2012 so quite a while ago now um she interviewed people who had been alleged uh, to perpetrate bullying in their workplace um, and in a number of instances that had kind of been sustained through uh, a process of workplace investigation. Um, and, you know, they all pretty much all purported that they didn't mean to bully anyone. They had no intention. It was nothing to do with personality conflict. And uh, a lot of the issues were to do with these kind of um 
you know, work-related bullying that we were discussing earlier. And what they talked about was that they kind of felt like the meat uh, in a, in a you know, organisational sandwich and they were being pressed from both sides. So, you know, kind of if you imagine pressing down on a sandwich, they were getting pressure from um, from their subordinate, sorry, their supervisors, senior management telling them that they needed to, uh, you know, get better KPIs from the team or um, cut costs or something like that. And then they were getting pressure from their subordinates who said, hey, we're feeling overwhelmed and overworked. And so they were trying to meet the demands of, of both those above and below them. And so the practices that they're instigating, um, you know, weren't necessarily meant to to harm someone, but they just couldn't seem to get the balance right in terms of meeting their demands and then, you know, enforcing those demands on others. Um, so that's a that's a really difficult uh, place for for both targets and uh, supervisors to be in terms of a reporting chain. That's that that's really interesting because. That also speaks to the potential of a you know, systemic and repetitive way that a, a, a workplace might work, where mm. uh, someone, you know, a manager, you know, maybe systematically themselves put under pressure, which yeah. is you know repetitive in nature, and, yeah. and them trying to do their job, yeah, uh, you know, flows down, yeah. and yeah, flows down, flows down, flows down, and anyone in that line could be experiencing this without yeah. knowing, you know, that yeah. like. I think you know they're, 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 it's so obvious when people are being bullied. Like we, we can see or harassed, yeah. you know, harassed in the in the obvious that everyone on the street just goes, "Hey, that's just completely unreasonable." Yeah. There, there, there's that harder stuff, which is where you know we have a clinic full of people who are experiencing really tough times, but mm. it's, it's not as tangible. It's harder to kind of see, and that's yeah. starting to explain, I think, a little bit more of that because I I wonder. Uh, whether you know it's hard to do the research because bullies don't want to put their hands up or whether it is that people who are allegedly bullying actually see themselves as bullies yeah you know or, or they just say yeah. well i don't i don't get it you know um mm. well, what am i doing wrong you know that yeah. you know i don't think i'm being unreasonable um yeah. and, and so the question of you know what is systemic you know what is repetitive and and, mm. and it's a real hard space but it does kind of lead into maybe that 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 space of culture because yeah. uh, uh, you know repetitive and systemic pressure on management that goes down and down and down it, it kind of means that everyone is systemically and repetitively being asked to do lots and there's pressure building yeah. yeah and i think the reason we um you know those who maybe are perpetrating bullying at that mid middle management level um maybe aren't reporting it so much because they have access to a lot more resources than uh, if you think of your, you know, your bottom tier level employees within an organisation, they usually have a lot of demands and uh, low resources. They don't have a lot of control in their work, little autonomy. Um, you know, they can't allocate pay rises for themselves, that kind of thing. But as you go up the chain, even though they might be experiencing similar levels of demands, they've got a number of avenues for resources that can kind of offset the uh, strain that comes with experiencing that demand so exactly like you said they may not perceive that they they are being bullied or what they are doing is bullying because uh you know they're getting the same kind of treatment but they're able to to manage the effects that are coming with that kind of un, unrelenting workplace stress um and they don't realize that the trickle down effect as you know as we go down the, the hierarchy means that those 
who are at the front line or um, kind of, you know, um, the, you know, I don't mean like the lowest level, I just mean those who have the least amount of control and autonomy in the organisation, um, they're probably the ones who are, are most likely to report bullying, turn up in your clinic because they just don't have any avenues to kind of uh, resolve the issue. But, um, it, you know, it's really interesting what you're saying about culture because I think another aspect around reporting that can be really difficult is what we, um, you know, the kind of reporting culture in an organisation. So there's a concept called psychosocial safety climate that was uh, developed by Maureen Dollard and colleagues at the University of South Australia. And that looks at these shared perceptions around um, how senior management kind of view and, and look after psychological health at the organisation. And we know where that climate is really low. So there's very little indication um, from senior management that they care about workers' uh, mental health and that they're actively taking steps to protect workers in that way. They're much less likely to report bullying in that kind of environment. They won't use voice. Uh, because they they know that it'll get nowhere if they're not showing you know senior management don't care about their health in general they're probably not going to care about you know when they report this kind of uh, hazard um, and it is legally a, a workplace hazard to be exposed to this behavior but you know what are they going to do about it they're they're not showing any kind of uh, care in general so um, you know again in in your really uh, formal hierarchical structured organisations tends to be uh, really low PSC and organisations that have um, high levels of, of safety climate more likely to report. So even though you might see high levels of bullying in that organisation, but sometimes that's a good thing because it means that people uh, feel open to speak up and actually report what's going on and, and have it be investigated and um, be dealt with. So, you know, those figures can be kind of misleading sometimes when we see them in terms of, mm. you know, lots of bullying being reported. It, it could be because things are really bad and it could be because, uh, you know, things are, um, are really well managed. In Well, you know, they're uh, taken seriously when they do occur at least. It's interesting to to think about it from a reporting culture because it doesn't necessarily mean that if there's a uh, if there's a terrible culture with lots of bullying that there's a lot of reporting going on because mm. it depends on whether people feel they will be heard and, yes. and if they don't feel they'll be heard or that that some action will be be yeah. um, uh, taken they're yeah. less likely to go out and say something and naturally that. That, that avoidance behavior which makes sense why would you you know why would you stick your head out and your neck out if uh, it's only going to go out and put you in the firing line um yeah. and you've seen others potentially try and and either be dismissed or um you know not listen to or whatever it might be yeah uh, is there is there any research about whether bullying occurs more or less in different levels of an organizational hierarchy uh, is, is is you know obviously you know Thinking about this on a per capita uh, basis, is it is it sort of that front line? Is it middle management? Is it upper upper management? Is is there discrepancies or, or differences between those areas um, that, that you're aware of? No, not I, I can't actually think of any studies that come to mind that have looked at that, um, which you know makes for a really interesting avenue of research for for those of you uh, listeners who maybe are, you know interested in coming into this field, but. I think um, 
you know, based on my understanding, uh, bullying would be less likely as you go up the organisational management chain. Um, just as I said, because you've got more control, more autonomy, more resources, you're either able to kind of stop the bullying as it occurs um, or you might not be, you just simply by virtue of your role um, and your position, you might not be subject to those kinds of behaviours. You might not have unreasonable deadlines because you're the one who's, who are creating deadlines. You know, if you're the CEO of a small company, um, nobody's telling you when you have to get work done by or, um, you know, saying you can't take your your leave at this time because there's already two people on leave. So um, I, I would suspect that as we went down the kind of chain, um, you're more likely to experience um, and or report bullying uh, when it does take place. So, But maybe that's something we'll, we'll look into next, see if it holds true. It, it, it is interesting because the, the you know the 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 um hypothesis makes makes sense and and, and I suppose on on, an, on another perspective maybe those that are in that middle management or even senior um uh, potentially they're, le- they're they're less likely to to report um mm-hmm. uh, or they're willing to live with bullying and harassment maybe 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 they've kind of come to terms with with that environment um, I can yeah. imagine there's a a bit of hustle and bustle and and, and uh, people throwing each other under the bus and all sorts of awful things that happen the higher you go up, um, yeah. uh, you know, because there's obviously great perfectionism and conscientiousness and disagreeableness that goes with with that, you know, upper upper echelon of, of organisations. But uh, mm. it is interesting. Uh, I wonder if, is there any difference between how, how bullying is reported in small business versus large organisations? Because, you know, there's, I know small business uh, is, is a large, um, you know, employs a large number of people in Australia. You know, small mm. business might, I don't know what the actual, how, how they, even those are uh, measured, but, you know, plenty of businesses that have, got, you know, 10 or less people mm. working for them um, versus, you know, large organisations like, you know, ACT Health or, you know, the public service or, yeah. you know, a large tech company that's got, you know, 5,000 employees. Yeah, uh, it's a a really good point. So, again, I don't think there's any formal research on it, but um, we do know anecdotally, you know, having talked to many victims of bullying over the years, that those kind of small to medium enterprises tend not to have uh, formal reporting structures. So they're much more likely to have to go to their, you know, direct line supervisor and just say, this is what's happening to me, who are also more likely to be doing the bullying. So I would imagine that it's much harder to uh, to report that kind of behaviour when you are in a, an environment of 10 people. Um, you know, there's no formalised HR program Mm. um you know my husband works for a small uh small it company and he wears six different hats he is hr um account keeping you know safety management um you know and a a number of other things and so he that's just a small part of the role that he does um and he's not up to date with the you know uh the the nuances of what you know what this kind of um, stuff looks like well I suppose he does by virtue of hearing about it from me but I imagine for a lot of people in his position um, you know you just don't have time to get to knuckle down and, and really understand what all of this looks like and, and the best ways to to manage it because you're so busy trying to um, to manage all these other aspects of the organization whereas you know you really big government agencies or big private entities they tend to have really clear uh 
formal reporting structures. So there's somebody that they can go to and, and you know, you know, often lodge uh, your um your complaint anonymously and it goes to a specialised team of employee relations specialists or, or human resource specialists who will come and investigate the matter with you. Um, and that lends itself to a really interesting study that's uh, that's about to come out in the next few weeks where we looked at how, um, you know, human resource professionals respond to bullying uh, when, when the case lands on their desk. And, you know, we, we imagine HR to be this kind of impartial party who are, are just there to find the facts and to, um, you know, seek resolution. But we found that they were really influenced, um, you know, I, I guess uh, by virtue of, of who the perpetrator was and, and the target and what they had been doing in the situation of bullying. So we we asked, you know, people who are HR specialists, um, you know, if you if this case landed on your desk, um, are you more likely to blame the target or perpetrator? Are you more likely to feel sympathy for the target perpetrator, anger, et cetera? And uh, we found that when the target had tried to resolve the situation, they had confronted the perpetrator, then, yeah, HR were, were willing to, um, you know, try and help resolve the situation, lend helping to the target. Um, but if the target hadn't done anything to resolve the situation for whatever reason, uh, they were less likely to want to help and they were more likely to side with the perpetrator, even if the perpetrator had been informed of the situation of bullying and done nothing to change their behaviour. Um, and we know that's because HR have this really conflicting role these days where they need to protect both the interests of the organisation uh, as a whole and especially senior management um, and individual employees. And we find that they tend to lean towards, um, you know, aligning or siding with uh, more senior members of the organisation, um, sometimes because they directly report to that person as well, you know, this everyone reports to the CEO eventually and so uh, you know if there's allegations come up they're they're probably feeling pretty nervous to to go out on a limb and say well yes I, I'm seeing some bullying here we need to take uh, punitive action against our CEO um, whereas it's much easier to say to the target look no I, I don't you know I don't think this might be as bullying or um, I think there's been reasonable action taken in this scenario to to address the situation so they can kind of um, even though they think that they're being objective in a situation, their kind of uh, emotions and the way that they interpret the situation can be kind of skewed. Um, and we need to delve a bit deeper into un fully understanding why that is the case. But it's kind of another flaw in, you know, in terms of um, the reporting system uh, and trying to get to the bottom of what's actually going on. <laughs> It's such a complex space as well because it almost feels like, and, and I know this isn't true in, in all organisations or even in, in, in this example, but if an investigation has to occur, all of a sudden it almost feels like it's adversarial. It's like, you know, yes. what is the truth? Yes. And, and based on that, I can just see, you know, all parties immediately going to you know, fight or flight response, digging yeah. into their truth defending their truth and and, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you know there's a tug of war going on uh, versus a conversation of saying you know a complaint has come in and, and you know we're not actually interested in the the, the truth per se because yeah. our research tells us it's going to be impossible to 
find this out. Even courts can't figure out the truth. They do it on, you know, reasonable probabilities. Yeah. Um, but the real question is how do we work together and, and what are, what are the challenges? How can we communicate? How can we see each other's point of view? What are, how can we express ourselves and, and, and feel supported and, you know, you know, regain trust in, in our working relationships and like, and it's almost like, a marriage right like like mm. like we've got to work on these things rather than trying to find out you know who's 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 right or wrong i, th- I think about the, yeah. Gottman, the Gottman, you know model of working with with uh couples you know the idea isn't to go out and say you know you're right you're wrong because ultimately you know uh, the relationship doesn't work if one is right and one is wrong because that right. just doesn't you know one's just got more uh, uh more uh, bonus points at the end, but they're still angry with each other. Yeah. Versus uh, both, uh, versus it's not a scoring mechanism. You know, we don't have to find the truth. We're, we're just saying we we do want to work together. Um, yeah, and, and, and fine. But geez, I must the, the the time allocation of that must be what's exhausting and and almost impossible. You know, to 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 which is I suppose the the great importance of managers um, and and you know, managers above those managers or, you know, however it occurs when when yeah. a complaint comes in. Yeah, it's such a timely resource-intensive process. Um, it's really draining for everyone involved. You know, you think about if someone does come out to investigate it, they've got to speak to the targets, they've got to speak to the alleged perpetrator, they've got to speak to bystanders, those who've, you know, who have been in the situation. Uh, you know, then you're bringing in, um, you know, support Support people. Your trade union uh, representatives might come in to to ensure there's adequate support for the targets. You've got to have um, mediation sessions to try and resolve the situation, and ultimately they they usually aren't very successful. So we go through this uh, big you know hurrah of trying to, as you said, get to the truth and and find out who um, who was right or who was wrong. To very little. Um, you know, benefit really. Like we we can sort of unpack the case, but what does it actually do in terms of ensuring that someone else won't be subjected to bullying or helping mend that kind of relationship? Um, so that's why, you know, we really purport that that's, uh, you know, it's a necessary part of, of the bullying response. Um, it's not to say we shouldn't have investigations, but much more time and energy should be spent on actually removing the uh, conditions that allow bullying to occur or all those kind of early intervention strategies, um, you know, around getting bystanders to step in and just say, hey, I don't, I don't think that's okay. I think that's kind of going beyond the par here or um, kind of speaking up, you know, in the moment so that it doesn't escalate to this um, critical point where we, you know, you can't come back and, and it's starting to have the depletus effects. So that's really what we've been looking into for the past uh, five or six years now is how do we actually go about um, preventing the situation and, and and stopping it getting all the way to the point of investigation because once you're there, the damage has usually been done, the relationship is fractured, the target is... Um, harmed in some way the perpetrator starts to feel uh you know strain then as well and um it's just a you know it's a lot of time and effort for a very little kind of benefit mm. as i said benefit i think yeah can you talk me through a little bit about you know bystanders the you know what what's the research out there about people who observe this how how 
Do they usually respond? What are their perspectives? Um, you know, do they uh, end up being involved themselves in 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 ways that are sort of uh, 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 unseen to them? Um, uh, could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So this is actually what I studied in my PhD. So it's kind of my um, pet topic, really. Is, is looking at how people around the bullying situation uh, respond and kind of take it in. So um, we know that roughly about 80% of people at work have witnessed bullying at some point. Um, so current estimates put being a target of bullying at, a, at around 10%. So in the last six months, around one in 10 people in Australia who are working have been subjected to bullying. Um, and that's probably more like 70 or 80% of, of people have witnessed bullying. Um that in itself is quite detrimental. We know that just witnessing bullying can also lead to depressive symptoms and uh, feeling stressed at work and less productivity and less creativity. So it's really not great, even if you're not the directed target mm. of it. Um, but people feel really nervous about, you know, intervening when they do see that kind of behaviour. And again, you know, it's such a complex issue. There's a number of reasons, but a couple of key ones that, you know, my research has shown is um, the ambiguity of the situation is a really uh, is a really key part of it. So a lot of the time, you know, if you're seeing like a fist fight, it's kind of really obvious, yeah, we need to step in and, and break these two people up, but there's going to be um, injury caused here. But if you're seeing someone kind of be excluded from social events or maybe they've been left off an email chain or they're, you know, you hear that someone's going to be overlooked for a promotion because they're not liked, uh, you know, is that is that enough to kind of step in and say, oh, look, I, I really don't think that's appropriate behaviour. I, I think, you know, you need to change change your thinking or actions here. Um, so the we know that the kind of more... Uh, what we call salient, the act of bullying kids, the more likely we are to intervene. Um, and that's fine, but those kind of really salient acts like stealing someone's property or, or causing physical injury are really low base rate behaviours. They don't occur all that often in workplaces. What's much more likely to occur is that kind of covert stuff around gossiping or socially excluding somebody or withholding information. And so you can imagine it's really hard to, to judge and say, well, is that bullying or is it, you know, do they have a reason for not passing on that information or maybe they just don't want you know, they don't have to invite that person to after work drinks, you know, it's not a work related event or, or, you know, maybe they didn't deserve to go to that conference, that sort of thing. And, and, and I think that that's what I'm grappling with as well. I'm, I'm struggling. I can see both sides on, on a technical level, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how does someone do it? Who's in it? You know, yeah. the, uh, and, and that's the, that's the great challenge because, you know, to define this one thing and then to actually then, uh, understand on it on you know in, yeah. in real time that ambiguity of the situation being yeah. you know problem with regards to you know that what is the behavior that causes harm and and yeah. you know that that's a that, that that's tricky for me i'm i'm, I'm yeah. wrestling with that as you're speaking yeah well look the you know so that's one part of it what we found is um you know those who feel like they've got a personal responsibility to intervene uh they're more obviously like more likely to do so and so originally i hypothesized that you know those who've got some kind of organizational status or power must be more likely to intervene if you're a manager that's your job to make sure that that kind of behavior doesn't occur 
and it actually didn't do a whole lot. You weren't more likely to intervene just because you led the group or you'd been at the organisation a long time or that, um, you know, play, it maybe, you know, you know, kind of contributed a little crumb to the picture, but it wasn't the whole story, um, you know, despite me thinking, oh, this has got to be really key to it. Um, but what did emerge is that, you know, when we interviewed people who who'd, um, witnessed bullying, you know, they they said that they were really fearful of the repercussions that came from um, from intervening. So, you know, they didn't want to be the next target of bullying. They, you know, they were sort of scared that they were going to have their shifts cut. Um, they were going to be fired. They were going to be, uh, exclude, you know, excluded themselves. And it kind of came back to this idea of, um, you know, belonging in the workplace. There was going to be this threat to whether or not they uh, could belong to their work group and be protected, um, which, you know, has its origins all the way back in our caveman days. It's this evolutionary mechanism where if we belong to a group, that brings, uh, you know, a sense of um, increased chance of survival. We don't want to be the lone guy out with the uh, the lion roaming around. We want to be in a pack because we're more likely to protect each other and have more resources and we can survive and all of that. And that's the kind of, you know, a coalition that's filtered all the way down and workplaces are the modern version of that. So we don't want to feel like we don't belong at work because we might not get a pay raise, we might not get these resources, we might be fired. We don't want to stick our neck out if we're not entirely sure that the norm on, you know, around this behaviour is is really clearly, um, you know, outside of what's accepted. So we kind of hang back and hesitate until we've got enough information or, or we feel a strong enough sense of personal responsibility to step in and, and intervene. And um, so, you know, that's what we would call like an intervening bystander, but we can also, you know, bystand in terms of being a, like a supporting bystander. So much like you were talking about, a lot of the time, you know, we might see what the perpetrator is doing and we might uh, laugh along with them um, and we might not ourselves kind of specifically target that person, but we align ourselves with what someone else is doing and kind of support them in that way. Um, and then we have, That makes you know, a lot of sense. Sorry to jump in, but that makes a lot of right. sense if I go back to my military days where I would, uh, just reflecting on it, I would sometimes see where a particular member might be taking something personally and I would very quickly try and target the person who is making fun of the person who's upset mm-hmm. and make a joke about them. So I would side with the person who's feeling the pain. Yes. Uh, and and uh, that's probably maybe a mitigating factor as to whether someone feels bullied because mm-hmm. uh, in some sense they then get support um, yes. and then it's they don't get a sense of uh, not belonging but rather they belong to now, you know, my group yes. um, uh, and it's against them and, and that gets shared around and, and just as you spoke, uh, I, I never realised I did this but um, I can see how some of my relationships formed uh, because I would find, I, I would observe um those who maybe weren't treated as well and mm-hmm. I would um, jump in, um, you know, maybe that's my saviour, saviour. Uh, um, the protecting bystander, that's certainly a sign. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> issues that I have myself. Um, but that's fascinating to hear you speak that way and, and, and how that ties in with that threat of um, belonging or, or obviously mm-hmm. being kicked out of the group. Wow. 
Yeah, it's, it's really in interesting. Um, and so we, you know, we, we've seen all different kinds of bystanders in the workplace, um, you know, that emerge for, for different reasons. Um, but we, we're just doing some research at the moment that's starting to look at how bystanders respond online because, you know, COVID kicked in and everything just went online. And so the way uh, the way we bully each other is actually starting to transition into that format as well. We're seeing a lot more cyberbullying come through, um, which, again, is, is not necessarily what you would expect. It's not kind of these nasty messages over social media. Um, that's very common in a school setting. Not so common at a work level, but um, it's not being able to to take a break from work. So it's getting emails at all hours of the night demanding that you complete this task or jump on this call. So, you know, not having reasonable uh, expectations of, of when you should be working and, and deadlines and that kind of thing. Or, um, again, you know, maybe being left off of information, being left out of Zoom meetings, that kind of thing. Um, and we it, we observed how bystanders responded to um, some prominent journalists on Twitter because we know that uh, that's a really uh, fascinating kind of medium for how people interact with each other. It's, um, you know, it's a wonderful place to, to study for this kind of behaviour in general. People feel very emboldened to kind of, uh, you know, perhaps be a little, more, little more unkind than they would be in person when they're behind the protection of the screen. Yeah, and there's also anonymity in that space where yeah. you're not necessarily saying it's, you know, this is Nesh Nicolick and here are my, yeah. you know, views and it's it's this is, you know, abc you know wolfman or something or other and yeah. i can say whatever i want um yeah. you know behind that shield of no one knows what i'm saying i can yeah. say things it's i can say things in public but not be public myself exactly yes mm -hmm. and we saw so much of this um particularly in a gendered uh sense so you know again we we tracked three prominent female and a male journalist and, and observe their tweets and the responses to these tweets. So we had people like Lee Sales, um, who, you know, used to host the 7.30 report and um, uh, Peter, um, oh, I can't think of his name at the moment, um, Ben Ottoman or something, and, and Anthony Green. And, um, you know, so we looked at the kind of discourse that followed their tweets and we found that, um, you know, what we presumed to be male tweeters but male responders because you can't be sure of that kind of uh, construct in, in a you know you can look at their twitter handle but you don't really know but we found that they uh, generally male respondents were much more likely to try and discredit or um you know bring uh bring negative attitudes or, or discourse to female journalists um you know basically if they had a, a personal view that they were um, you know, a disgrace to the organisation that they worked for and they shouldn't be voicing that. And if they posted a family photo, that would, you know, why are you doing this instead of this? Whereas for the male journalists, they were kind of, you know, they could be separated from their work and their personal life. So if they posted a family, oh, isn't that lovely to see, like doing a great job, or if they had a controversial topic, there were tons of people jumping in to, to support them and say, no, they have every right to say that and, and um, to feel that way. But if if Lee Sales was coming out and saying, you know, um, 
Anthony Albanese has done a great job on this, you know, oh, you shouldn't be taking a view on that. You should be neutral. You went for the ABC. How could you, uh, you know, do that kind of thing? So it just allows, I think, these social, uh, you know, um, views that people might have and, and sort of bury a little bit deeper down when they're actually in a workplace setting allows them to kind of come out, um, as you said, with the protection of anonymity and, um and, and the privacy that kind of Twitter offers. So that's another really challenging area for us going forward is how, you know, how do we protect people from that when it's these um, very deeply ingrained kind of views on, on gender or whatever it is um, are allowed to be perpetrated in, in that kind of environment? Well, I'd have to assume, not that I know your, your, your research, but I have to assume as well from what you've just said that it's more than likely men who are making these comments. Um, uh, and I, I don't know why I have that inkling. You know, it's not like I've gone out and read research uh, uh, that goes out and informs that, but it just feels like it's a it's a male type of behaviour, you know, that, that you know, men can sometimes behave badly or aggressively in actual fact. This, this seems like it's a more aggressive, you know, actor or even thinking about it from a, you know, uh, uh, being argumentative, um, you know, just just being, you know, a contrarian and just saying, you know, you shouldn't even have a comment on that or whatever mm. it would be. Why do you think that is? You know, assuming that what we've said is is valid, because obviously there's an assumption that they are male responders and we don't know that factually. Mm. But why do you think that is? Why do we both feel the same? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, the, the limited evidence we have, believe it or not, suggests that it, it's actually pretty evenly split in terms oh, of, uh, yeah, in, but, you know, perpetration of, of violence. So the, the data we have, which well, that again... blows my, my, my uh, comment out. out I have the same perception <laughs> and I have the evidence that goes against it. So this analysis of, of 342 cases showed that it was about a 55-45% split, right? Like it was, it was slightly more men and women were more likely to report the bullying. But if you think about a healthcare setting, for example, in hospital, it's a heavily female-dominated uh, profession and it's one of the most, uh, it's one of the riskiest places for bullying. Women will bully other women in that setting and not give it a, like it's, there's a term um, eating their young so it's kind of ingrained in their culture that their bullying behaviour is is perpetrated and almost accepted to an extent because that's how they were taught and that's how they, you know, uh, think that it's okay now to act for the for the younger generations. Um, and same in your male-dominated industries, you know, construction and uh, IT and defence, you know, um, it's, it's men bullying other men. So um, it's... Uh, I think it's a really interesting perception that it's kind of, you know, male perpetrators um, and, and female targets when we don't necessarily have the, the evidence to suggest that. I think perhaps it comes from our understanding of how, you know, um, domestic violence, sexual violence, sexual harassment is perpetrated and plays out, you know, especially in an Australian setting, because I do understand that that is much more skewed and um, it's much more likely to be, uh, you know, um, a male perpetrator against a, a female target, although there are obviously cases where that, uh, you know, doesn't hold true as well. And so I think it's kind of spills over then in terms of, um, you know, this, this understanding that it's, this kind of senior male manager at work who is is perpetrating these acts of bullying, but um, you know, in in reality, it's it's 
it's more likely to do with your kind of position, I think. And there are lots of female managers. There's lots of people in the workplace of, who've got power and status, um, you know, who, who may not identify either way or who aren't necessarily male. And so they're just as likely to to bully other people um, as, as, you know, kind of a white man is, which I think, again, is the stereotypical view of a, of a bully, um, bullying person in the workplace. It might also be with you know the, the challenge of, of of grappling with what is bullying and and understanding what that is mm. rather than just that sense of you know someone being awful to another person that someone yeah. being awful has got so many different shapes to it and 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 yeah. I suppose that that's what this conversation is highlighting for me this this struggle with the concept of of how do I understand it, you know, and, you know, how is harm caused and yeah. you know, what, what are the perceptions that are involved and do people need to yeah. speak up or not, you know, how much is the culture responsible, yeah. uh, you know, how how much is reasonable, who's the judge of what unreasonable is uh, and, and so on and so forth. It, 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 it's hard because, you know, that obvious one is so simple. Like, you know, yeah. most of the time, you know, it's easy to do the pub test of saying, did um you know sexual harassment occur if yeah. x you know um, let's do a stereotypical one where you know someone makes a comment about someone's physique in a you know with sexual innu- innuendo everyone mm-hmm. these days easily can go out and say come on that is just you know so out of bounds it's it, it, mm-hmm. it's it's ridiculously obviously you, you can't misplace that Uh, at least most people um and i'd like to think that bystanders in those scenarios would often um uh you know with today's culture still be able to say something and belong to a group rather than fear retribution um and that's not always the case in every organization and certainly don't want to take that away from anyone out there that is experiencing that um Quite often, it's easy to see these, you know, over um, uh, 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 yeah, examples, um, and and you know, it's it's quite a challenge for HR and organisations and managers and and, and people themselves. I bet there's a lot of people who are being either harassed or mm-hmm. um, bullied who don't even know they're being bullied or harassed. Mm-hmm. They they're, they're just mm-hmm. like, well, isn't that just how it is? Isn't you know, it doesn't doesn't this power thing just that's how it works out. This is normal, yeah. isn't it? Right. Yeah. This is how yeah. it was at home, or this is how it is in yeah. my own friendships. Yeah. You know, it's 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 interesting. Yeah, and then they wind up in your office feeling, you know, all of these depleted effects and going, I, I don't really understand why. You know, I just I'm feeling this way and I'm feeling awful, but not necessarily understanding where where it's coming from until you dig a little deeper. Um, but I th- thought you made a really interesting point there around uh, you know, the way that um in terms of you know intervening and, and why maybe we associate men being perpetrators and it kind of struck me I think that um, there are differences in the way that men and women perpetrate bullying in the workplace you know as a general rule and and men are more likely to instigate this kind of uh, more salient acts of bullying so you know verbal aggression physical aggression um, you know, I, I, there's a prominent example that springs to mind when I interviewed someone who who said that their colleague was putting wood shavings. They're working on a construction site and used to go around putting wood shavings in, in all of the guys' sandwiches, um, you know, and it was a joke and everything, but it was this kind of repeated behaviour. So it was this really clear, salient act of, of trying to bring harm to somebody. So, um, you know, those 
those kinds of acts are more likely to be instigated by men. And we think about the way women tend to bully and it is so much more converted, it's so much more about, you know, uh, socially excluding people from the mm. group or gossiping, talking behind their back, and it's so much harder to see it. So I think that's potentially why we we do associate it with one gender more than the other. It's just that the way the bullying is, is viewed and seen and, and um, acceptance in whether or not it can be called out tends to lie with, the way men bully in organized or can bully in organizations it's not to say they can't do those other things and that women can't instigate physical verbal abuse um but it just the way it tends to show up is is those more covert acts are associated with male perpetrators and, and um sorry overt acts and covert acts with with women and so it maybe it's more hidden in that way and it's um you know less likely to be seen and picked up on mm. It's really interesting, even that little example of a, you know putting putting wood shavings in people's sandwiches. You know, I, I bet if we met that person, which you obviously did, that they would probably still think that was funny. Mm. They, they they probably did. wouldn't realize that it causes yeah. harm, and, and it probably yeah. doesn't cause you know immense harm. Uh, yeah. But it's the repetition part. It's like, mate, you've been told it's not funny. Mm. Uh, stop doing it, and you know. That is just not on. It's not an appropriate yeah. behaviour. And, and we're not saying stop being funny in other ways. Mm. But think about how you're being funny because your, um, you know, people around you, and particularly one person, is really affected by this. So pull your head in, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know that would be probably wouldn't be how HR would talk to that person. But you know maybe that a male dominated area they might speak in those in those terms and and and, and you know potentially with other language. Uh, as well that maybe you need someone to be shocked in that way but you know yeah. um you know obviously as a psychologist we can't entertain those uh, space you know to to too much but yeah. i'm just looking at it from a functional like you know what actually observably probably happens on on on, on work sites and the like but uh yeah uh, there is yeah everyone um is in an environment which is complex and and you know plenty of of um uh unknown bullying is occurring because it's mm. systemic because it just goes on and on and, and someone might think it's reasonable yeah. um, and that's by no means trying to you know take any bully off the hook um yeah. you know because we still have to be responsible for actions that you know the gentleman that was putting um you know uh, wood shavings they still need to go out and say yes i put my hand up and i can observe that's wrong and if they can't yeah. Well, then obviously they can't be part of a culture because that yeah. they can't be tolerated. You know, that that's just, you know, if they can't learn from it and it's unacceptable behavior, you know, organizations are within their own right to say you're terminated. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's where the role of some of these other kind of prevention or, you know, intervention strategies come in around policy and the need to really clearly articulate what is and isn't accepted behaviour within uh, that, you know, organisational team or unit, because it's not to say that there is this kind of standardised practice across um, across all industries. Like I said, you know, yelling at somebody in an office setting would just be uh, really weird uh you know sorry it would be quite unacceptable and go, why would you act in that way that's totally outside of the norm but if you're on a construction side if you're in you know any kind of outdoor setting of course maybe you're yelling because you're trying to communicate over the sound of power tools or you're in a high stress situation you're on the battlefield um you know it's this accepted practice and so 
Um, it's not to say that, you know, it's fine, you know, just because it's typical in one setting that it's okay and that it doesn't necessarily cause deplete, you know, harm to people. Um, but, you know, that that idea of context is so important there. And, um, you know, again, you, you could you know, the idea of putting wood shavings in someone's sandwich, it's really clear how that's going to cause harm to somebody. They're going to ingest it and it's going to cause digestional discomfort or, or you know, worse could actually lead to, to um, really bad outcomes. But we don't, you know, it's not immediately obvious how, you know, leaving somebody off the roster, you know, giving someone a bad roster for that week and then not letting them go to the conference and then giving them an unreasonable back-to-back shift, for example, how that's going to actually manifest in a negative outcome for the target because it takes a long time well not necessarily a long time but it, it can take a long time for those kind of effects to build up we have we sort of we lose our energy we lose our sense of resilience and it's only when we've got to this point of total emotional burnout and we've lost our sources of social support and we've used up all of our resources that people go oh, well actually I, th- I think mm. you know I feel like I'm being bullied um but at, in the time you know people who who maybe are perpetrating these behaviours aren't thinking about six months down the track how this little one act is going to snowball and, and affect somebody. I can also, you know, consider and, and observe the, 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 the real possibility that because we're social beings, we develop favourites and so all yeah. of a sudden the favourites go to the conferences, you know, and the, the favourites get asked, do you want to come for a coffee or yeah. whatever it might be, and, and we, which is you know, measurable, uh, but, you know, not necessarily considered uh, yeah. in, 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 you know, from, you know, at, at any level. Um, so, yeah, very, very, very complex, complex space. Can you talk a little bit about some of the, uh, what, what, what research is out there in terms of how, how organisations can combat, um, you know, the, 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 this space? I, I think we, we obviously touched on, Culture, um, I assume culture is really important in terms of, you know, whether people can report, you know, support uh, around, you know, reporting, but even, you know, culture of what are our standards. Mm. Like, like we can't just assume that everyone knows the standards. This, this, you know, uh, this, this, this would be uh, a silly assumption. You know, how, how do how do organisations do it? What does the research say? You know, are, are there gold standards of, of places that do it well and what can we learn mm-hmm. from them? Yeah, we don't have, uh, unfortunately, we don't have much evidence in terms of that gold standard um, be, because we know bullying kind of exists almost everywhere. So mm-hmm. there's, there's probably no organisation free of, of that kind of behaviour. But um, certainly what our research over the last eight years has focused on is how do we kind of prevent this, this behaviour occurring in the first place. And you're absolutely right. A lot of it sits within this broader frame of, of culture. Um, but culture manifests in a number of specific kind of actions and the way we go about doing things on a day-to-day basis. So what we have um, found and, and developed and, and tested and trialled over that period of time is, um, is a framework of uh, what we call like risk context. So it's areas of day-to-day functioning in the workplace um, that are overseen, managed and coordinated by, you know, supervisors of of various levels. Um, Just about how people interact with each other and manage each other on a day-to-day basis. So uh, there's there's 10 domains um, and we have a specific tool now that enables us to um, go into a, a unit or a team or, you know, department within an organisation and we administer this um, 
this kind of rating scale to all of the workers in that department. And we can see the points in the organisational system where bullying is most likely to come from. So we know if it's the way that they're being rostered and, and uh, you know, the, the kind of way that their leave entitlements are offered, uh, if it's the way that interpersonal relationships are being managed, is it the way that they're uh, role has been clarified and defined is it the way that they're being performance managed so we can kind of pinpoint exactly which part of the organizational practice is most likely to lead to the perception or, or actually um, is most likely to lead to um, bullying in that particular team or unit or uh, department and then we can go about working with the um, you know, working with that team, you know, the managers and the employees to develop new ways of, um, you know, the the kind of policies, the procedures, the systems, everything that underpins the way that particular organisational context is managed and coordinated. So as an example, one of the most common ones that come up when we've done this kind of work is, is the way that people are appraised and rewarded. And so what we hear a lot is that, you know, we get told everything we're doing that's wrong and we so rarely hear what we're doing right. There's so little recognition and thanks for, uh, you know, for the work that we've done. And so we we have this kind of co-design process where we hear from the frontline employees about how they're experiencing this sort of appraisal and reward system in their unit and their managers are you know, are at the table and they hear that information and they work collaboratively to come up with new ways, um, better ways of, you know, achieving that kind of, uh, that kind of task. So it might be, you know, just more verbal thank yous. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of work with uh, in the retail setting and we have store managers walk the floor and actually go and talk to their employees and say, I see you're doing great, great job, uh, you know, stacking this, uh, you know, area of the fruit and veg department great job or I, I saw that you stayed late yesterday to help so and so do that I really appreciate that um, you know maybe it's it manifests through more awards more monthly uh, you know barbecues we, they, they put on a breakfast bar for their employees who, so who, those who are coming in early for the, the 6am shift could come in and have a cup of coffee and a bowl of cereal and some toast before they went out on the floor and it was just these kind of small things that made people feel more recognised and appreciated for the work they did, um, all the way through to, you know, much broader um, initiatives around appraise, you know, redesigning how the pay structure works, what, how they can apply for promotions, how they can be recognised for their service more generally. So it's quite, you know, there's a, um, a whole plethora of strategies that they come up with and then they work to implement that. So what that does is actually sort of eliminate the the risk context that allow bullying to kind of come up. And so when you talk about favouritism, you know, that's a really important part of that. Um, and if you have systems in place that don't really allow favouritism and unjust behaviour to, to kind of occur, if you have a really clear and transparent rostering system that ensures fairness, um, you know, in terms of allocations of shifts as much as possible, you're much less likely to have people feeling like they've been personally targeted or affected by any one area of organisational functioning because they know even though they scored the Christmas Day shift, uh, you know, they, they can see that other people have been allocated to that shift or they know that they've just had some time off and so this is the reason that they're going, you know, they've been rostered on in, in that particular time frame. So, you know, fairness, transparency, um, and, and I guess mutual agreement for the way that those kinds of areas of functioning are, are managed and coordinated.
Mm, and a lot about communication that that, that people yes. are you know communicating and and there's opportunities for things to be raised and and, yes. and therefore you know taking care of that that you know may lead to resentment and you know potentially at that point you know once someone's resentful they might actually start doing confirmation bias and start seeing all of these things that yes. fall into the category of, of you know, bullying and harassment. Yes. I'm wondering whether I want to play devil's advocate because part of my, my um, you know, job, job in uh, stretching my mind is, is, is to ask questions. Is, is, there, is, is there any data out there that shows that our bullying rates are coming down, you know, uh, or, uh, or, um, yeah, you know, I'm assuming that organisations these days are, are are so much better in doing the things that you've mentioned than they were, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, having said that, I'm wondering also whether human beings are human beings, and no matter what we do, we still find things, you know, that that previously might not be perceived, experienced as bullying. We now, that's now on the bullying list. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, is there any change in data um, that goes out and, 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 and says that at least the rates are coming down uh, or have we got uh, you know, a, a plateau? What's the movement? And, and if there is movement, what do you think it, you know, is, is attributed to, to that change? Yeah, really great questions. That, my apologies. <laughs> no, that's all right. It's, uh, no, they're all great questions. Um, so we have... Um, we have a nationally representative uh, barometer for, for all kinds of work conditions. And so that was measuring, um, you know, using a nationally representative sample of Australian employees, you know, what was going on in terms of all these, you know, domains at their work. And that was being done at various uh, three-year intervals for a little while. So the Australian Workplace Barometer Project, again, um, being run by Maureen Dollar down at the University of South Australia. And, and for a couple of years, um, basically, we just saw an increase. So the last figures that we got in were in 2014 and 15, and that put us at 9.7% of, um, you know, so basically one in 10 Australian workers being exposed for bullying. That was up from 6.7% in 2010 and 2011. We haven't had any release of data since that time point. So we... Um, I don't know for sure that the rate has gone up. Um, my gut feel tells me very much so that it has. I don't think we have uh, gone in the right direction. And the reason I think that is because if we look at worker compensation data from places like SafeWork uh, Australia, and so people who put forward um, compensation claims for undue exposure to mental stress at the hands of workplace and bullying, the number of claims, the number, the median time off of work and the total cost of those claims has kept climbing over the years. So we've seen a steady increase all the way up to, I think, uh, 2020 was the last data that came out on that. So um, we are like 14 times more likely to take time off of work as a result of a, of a claim of mental stress perpetrated by bullying as we are for, you know, breaking our leg at work. Um, and it's up to eight times more costly to come off of work as a result of bullying than it is for, again, you know, breaking your leg at work or something like that. So 14 times more likely. 14. Wow. We, we take huge amount of time. So, you know, the, the average amount of time off of work um, due for workers' compensation is about a week. Uh, you're sitting much more, you know, at four to five months off of work as a result of, of you know, having an accepted claim of, of uh, mental stress due to bullying and harassment. So it, um, as much as it's this kind of perception, those who have been affected by it have 
really been affected by it. It takes a long time for them to recover because they lost trust in their organisation, in their supervisors. They've lost, uh, as you said before, their identity, their resources. And it's not just a case of, um, you know, that doesn't just recover within a short period of time. But the other thing is you break your leg at work and people automatically feel you know sympathy oh that sucks you know that must really hurt let me know if I can help you if you take time you know if if you submit a workers compensation claim and um, step away from the organization I think inevitably there'll be some people that say how on earth did you do that like you don't deserve you know you shouldn't be paid for that we're all under those kinds of conditions so there's there's much less support in terms of um you know, helping that person recover from from the experience that they've had. They have a much harder time coming back into the workplace. There's less likely to be kind of provisions made to support their their return to work. And so they're much more likely to transition to a new workplace, um, which in itself can bring, you know, issues that they have that mm-hmm. fear of, of, you know, happening to them again and that kind of thing. Um, so it's, you know, it's a really tricky, you know, so it's a real problematic area um i will just say as well in in terms of prevalence rates um even at that 9.7 percent rate and, and that was a number of years ago now that put us ahead of 36 european nations in terms of prevalence of bullying so we had a higher rate of bullying than um most of western and, and central europe you know in terms of, of their exposure if you look at the scandinavian countries who are much better at this kind of uh, managing psychosocial risk in general their rates are down around two percent um it's just not that com- you know that they, they have much better practices it's much less accepted over there and so uh you know they they've kind of dealt with this issue we australia is so far behind in terms of the acceptance of, of the harm that this causes and, and actually someone might you know the acceptance that someone is being bullied um, I think part of that rate that continues to rise is in part due to people reporting it more, which, as I said before, is great. It means that people feel that they can report bullying more, which signals a much better safety climate within organisation, and that is a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing in some ways. But I also truly believe that the demands that have been placed on us, um, you know, just in general, but especially the last couple of years of of COVID and the transition to work from home and the strain that has been put on organisations and individuals to perform in very stressful conditions and with very limited resources has most likely um, meant that, you know, this kind of perception and and instigation of bullying has, has probably gone up in that time. So I'd be really interested to see, you know, that nationally representative data when it does come out, um, you know, to see where we're sitting. Uh, Annabelle, you you just exposed one of my uh, you know one of my other problems, which is my optimism bias. I I keep getting blown away in these in, in, in these interviews and podcasts, thinking that the world is getting better and better, and I'm just constantly you know thinking that because because technology improves and technology goes with you know in my eyes you know air quotes everything but it clearly it doesn't we're talking about human beings here and 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 our experiences but uh i certainly didn't think that it would you know be be in that direction yeah i just keep thinking that you know fairness is on the on the decline sorry on 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 the increase Mm. um you know and equality is uh you know on on the increase and you know we're understanding each other better and you know people seeing more psychologists and therefore Mm. learning more about themselves and being able to manage etc etc 
but um, you know, I definitely have a problem with optimism. Um, I just see it everywhere, so I need to, I need to curb curb that and 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 uh, be be more more um, you know cognizant of of how how I view the world. But uh, look, some 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 really interesting things there, and and hopefully we can also look at some of the Scandinavian countries mm. with regards to you know what what's the culture in which they they operate, and 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 you know you know I, th- I think you know many times have have has the Scandinavians been uh mentioned you know not only in this podcast but you know many others about being the gold standard for for uh, a lot of things that they are you know on the front foot of of you know, thinking about their people all the time and and yes. you know obviously we don't fully understand how to emulate and and, and repli- replicate what they've got but uh mm-hmm. um yeah sometimes i think that australia is a bit further ahead um than than what it is um but so where can we where 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 can our listeners find out more about you know this space and 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 obviously workplace bullying um, even if it's for for you know finding out more about your research uh, what they can do within their own organisations um, you know how to set their own um, management strategies and the like where where can people start to you know read more listen more about about this topic as a as a general. Yeah, so um, look, listeners are really welcome to uh, to contact me um, at the University of Queensland. You can just Google Dr Annabelle Neal and a um, number of our, you know, research has been published um, and it's available to those who are interested. Um, I, I think generally a really good place to start is actually places like Safe Work Australia or um, WorkSafe, you know, in your particular jurisdiction. They have some great resources on how to manage psychosocial risk by bullying and harassment, the, the steps that we need to take, and it's akin to managing physical hazards. We need to identify uh, where the risk is coming from and then implement um, practical, you know, simple strategies to kind of um, eliminate that risk as, as much as possible. And, and that, you know, to go back to what you said, Nesh, I don't think we'll ever eliminate bullying in the workplaces because we are human and we're prone to, um, you know, a number of, of I guess, behaviours and traits that are and maybe not so desirable and that bring harm to people even if we don't mean to. But there's certainly things that we can do in terms of setting up the, the work system itself and the, the way that we practice work um, to try and eliminate some of that risk at least so that we're only left with, you know, what we seemingly can't be totally controlled. So, um, yeah, Safe Work Australia, j- jump online. They have uh, guides to managing that. We're starting to see shifts in legislation that's um, uh, making it kind of enforced that you have that organisations must um, implement uh, procedures and strategies that do protect workers' psychological safety. So ISO uh, or something that that was came out a little bit uh, earlier this year. Um, so nationally agreed upon guidelines for for managing psychosocial risk. Um, talk to the organisation, see what's in place. So have a look at your policies and your procedures around reporting bullying and. You know, my favourite term is, you know, we have a zero tolerance policy for, for bullying in the organisation. It doesn't mean anything, but there's nothing in a written document that says that people will just be nice to one another. There needs to be active strategies in place that ensure that people, um, you know, are behaving in a way that's um, that's psychologically safe and acceptable and that there are means to report when that isn't going well. Um 
And, uh, you know, there's, I guess, um, you can, you know, if you are being experiencing bullying, you can jump online to Fair Work Australia and they actually have a formal process outside of individual organisations where you can apply for a stop bullying order. So, um, you know, you'll go through a questionnaire and if they, um, you know, they'll come and investigate and if they do uh, make the decision that bullying uh, has occurred in that instance, they will issue a legal order that requires the cessation of um, cessation of that that behavior and and so there'll be legal notices handed down um so that's kind of an an avenue for people as well but I think you know just generally if we can all be a little bit more mindful of the way we um we interact with each other and how these seemingly small work practices and tasks may be having an effect on other people um you know we'd see mass improvement uh pretty quickly actually yeah lovely what's your next uh, research focused on that you're you know, looking forward to getting your teeth into? Yeah, I'm really, uh, really interested in this idea of bystanders. So I'm really looking towards building some kind of training intervention models, programs um, that kind of upskill people and allow them to feel safe um, to intervene when they do see that because um, I see it as a really critical part of, of solving the bullying challenge is um, kind of stopping the behaviour in its early stages ages, early intervention without formal kind of input, uh, just calling out, you know, norms around what's accepted in that workplace, um, you know, providing support for the for the targets, standing up to the perpetrators when they do instigate this initially, um, and just changing the the kind of accepted, as I said, norms or behavioural mm. norms around what, what can take place in organisations. But we really need to understand what's stopping people from, from doing that before we can help um, you know, upskill them in, into being able to do it. So hopefully that'll mm. see me through for the next couple of years, uh, amongst other things. No, it sounds interesting. I mean, it's really looking at setting up a culture and, and, and you know, in doing so, having to address people's avoidance behaviours, you know, that, you know yes. that, that, that is the, the, the greatest barrier, you know, with, with the things that you've mentioned already in terms of, you know, fear of, you know, uh, being the one that's going to be persecuted afterwards or, you know, the belongingness, you know, fear and and, and the like. But uh, fascinating because obviously research gets to a certain level and it's lovely to hear that uh, the next sort of uh, chapter for you is is looking at, you know, how do we potentially upskill organisations and people mm-hmm. and teams to, to be able to set their own cultures uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's um, you know, workable, in their context to to make sure that you know everyone is, is you know can enjoy their work and contribute yeah. and have a good time you know we spend so much time at work so you know we yeah. we should really try as a as a as a whole as a community to to do it better so yeah thank you thank you i really appreciate your time yeah, today it's been very enlightening for 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 myself and and certainly you know pose a lot of questions and, and much more for me to go out and think about and and, and consider uh, and also to see my biases that that how I am as a human being playing into this space, um, you know how I view uh, bullying and harassment, you know understanding you know, the harm, uh, uh, and that can be you know come from you know, perceived you know perspectives, but also that you know a lot of people are not cognizant themselves mm-hmm. the the value of communication um even though that's not not, not a strange one but the, the the importance of it but not necessarily the need you know for all of us to to reflect as individuals so mm-hmm. thank you so much annabelle really appreciate your, your your time your expertise and um 
yeah, it, it's something for, for, for me to ponder on some more. So I yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.